You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. All right, welcome back to Experiencing Data. I'm excited to have Gotti Oren on the line from Logic Monitor. How's it going, Gotti? It's going great. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to uh, have you on the show to talk about, well, not just monitoring, but you've done a lot of work on SaaS uh, analytics products in the monitoring space, software for IT departments in particular. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your background and what you're doing at Logic Monitor these days? So uh, many, too many years in the in different industries. I actually spanned uh, uh, multiple industries, starting from medical imaging, and let's say in the, the recent eighteen years, mostly some sort of uh, monitoring solutions. And uh, I dabbled also a little bit with marketing data analytics. That was not a successful company, but I might draw uh, some examples from there. Right now, I'm uh, I've recently joined uh, Logic Monitor through an acquisition. I was the founder and CEO of a company called Articulate here in Boston. And uh, that company was acquired in uh, April by Logic Monitor. And I'm now the VP of uh, product management. And what Logic Monitor is doing is solving a fairly old problem that still remains, which is monitoring is really difficult. Many companies, as they grow, they reach the point where they realize how, how important it is for them to monitor what's going on in order to be successful. And then they realize, that it's such a complex domain that they need to develop expertise. And it's just all around difficult. And our mission, Logic Monitor's mission is to provide a, a monitoring solution that's just that just works, that's simple enough to just go in and install it quickly and get coverage on everything you need so that you as a company can focus on what you really care about, which is your, your business. Obviously, that's a hard pro- that's a hard problem to solve, and I'm curious for you know for people that are listening to the show. So I imagine a lot of what this product is doing is is looking for exceptions, looking for things that are out of bounds from what some semblance of normal is. Is that correct? And then providing that insight back to customers is that a fair evaluation? It's a fair it's a fair evaluation. There's a wider context of you know. What is there is obviously the question of what is normal, but in general, providing that there's many ways to define what normal, what normally is, then then the answer is yes. It's the ability to give you visibility into what's going on. First of all, to just see that things work in general and work okay, and then when something goes out of what you define normal, to notify you on that and help you with getting things better. From your experience in this space, since, since, since in a lot of companies that are doing analytics, it may be difficult to define the boundaries of what normal is such that you could do something like alerting on, oh, we've un, you know, detected an abnormal trends in sales, or I don't know this, I can't think of something off the top of my head, but for companies that maybe don't have haven't worked. I, I like the idea that you have that the focus of the product is on declaring a conclusion or driving an insight that's probably derived from analytics that are happening in the background. So I would put that in the camp of declarative analytics as opposed to exploratory, where it's like, 
here's all this data. Now you go and find out some interesting signal in it. Most customers and users don't want the latter. They want the tool to go do that job. So do you have any suggestions for how you know, companies that maybe aren't quite in, the, in a domain where it's black and white, like a binary thing, like you know, this port is either connected or not. And if it's not connected, that's bad. And if it is, it's good. Is there a way to like kind of approach putting guardrails on things or what normalcy is? Or are you following what I'm saying? How do you move into that declarative space? The, the answer is obviously depends. But <laughs> the problem is so difficult that you are even having a hard time defining the question, right? It is very, very difficult. But by the way, you, you called it declarative. And I, I like that. I actually call it in a different way that usually creates a, a lively discussion, which I call it opinionated, opinion system. And, and the reason is, you know, there's some evolution here, especially with regards to monitoring, but I think it's the same for other type of systems that are analytic-based. 10, 15 years ago, it was so difficult to just gather all the data that being non-opinionated or non-declarative for, for your definition was pretty good because people just needed the data and they bought the context themselves. But there's been a lot of changes since that time, first is the availability of computing, but the other is also the need is much, much greater now for give me the opinion, give me the bottom line, right? So the, the system needs to be opinionated and then it can be a variety of things. It's really multiple types of, of algorithms that can be used here. A small set of that is what people define today as machine learning and AI, but it's actually the domain is much larger than just AI. And it's the ability to look at multiple signals and develop in, in a certain degree of confidence a conclusion that is derived from those multiple signals, to put it in, a, in, in the most generic way that, that I can. Some of them can be discrete or binary, and some of them can be continuous. How do you look at all that stuff and say, I think that this is what's going on? And even more than that, here is what you Think, here's what we think is going on. Here's what you can do about it. Or here are a few options for you to act on it. That is the ideal solution that we would like to have. And obviously, we don't have, we have very, very little of that right now. I think it's a journey that will take us years to get. <laughs> I love that idea of opinionated because I think it's, it softens the expectation around the technology. And it, it also reminds people that it's, you know, it's no different than when, you know, your plumber comes to the house and, and you're like, well, the shower hot water isn't quite as hot as the sink water. And maybe he like tightens some things and he tries, turns on some faucets and, and he gives you an opinion about what might be wrong without actually tearing apart the whole system. And we would tend to kind of trust that. And he might say, well, what I really need to do is X. And then you make a decision whether you want to pay for that or not. But it's not kind of like, if you can't give me a 100% decision, then I'm, then I'm unsatisfied. We, we kind of, we accept that opinion. And so I, I, what I've found in, in my career and experience with clients is that sometimes if they can't get it perfect, they're worried about doing anything at all. And so I, I like this idea of casting an opinion. So, so on that thought then, is there a, how do you balance the you know, especially if you, you know, for example, you're putting a, a data model in place or something like this, which is going to learn from the information. There may be insights gleaned from some type of a um, computer-based analysis, which may be unseen or unexpected by the business, and that could be positive or negative. But there also might be some context of what normal 
or expected is from the end user. So do you have any, like, for example, like I expect the range to be, you know, kind of between 32 and 41 most of the time. And I know sometimes it goes up and I kind of have this feeling, you know, about X, Y, and Z. So they kind of have something in their head and then you go and do all this technology and it says, well, the normal range should be 14. And so we flagged a 16 here. And he's like, oh, that's not really, I don't care about that. It's not high enough for me to care. It's, it's, how do you balance that kind of sense that maybe an end user has? Like I track sales or I'm doing forecasting or, and they have all this experience in their head. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple of things. I, it, it really depends a little bit. It depends a little bit about the domain. In some situations where the, the end result is what's really, really important, you can use things that are more black boxy type of things like neural networks or things like that usually tend to be not always, but but most cases they tend to be very black box. It's like here's the result, and it, you know I can't tell you why that happened. It's based on all this training I did before, and you know. But some in some situations the result cannot be black box. It needs to be explained, and in in those situations you really need to give people an explanation on on why things happen like they are, right? So monitoring in many cases tends to be the the latter, which is I want to see the signal and and the signal cost and what was the shape and I want to see how it looked yesterday and if it looks the same maybe it's okay and you know in certain situations I don't know maybe if you have let's say you have a database and it has a latency of half millisecond which is very small and then this morning it it moved to one millisecond is that normal well it's not normal but I don't care about it because before it gets to five milliseconds I don't need to know about it right so. In those situations, I don't know if that's what you referred to by, by guardrails or, or things like that, we would also provide, while the system is learning and can automatically detect what's abnormal, there is a range to what, what I care about, right? If, so I'm going to put, a, let's say, a threshold and say, only if you cross five milliseconds and this is not normal behavior, then I want to see an alert, right? And normal could be defined like, the signal is two sigmas away from, you know, the same day last week, right? Something like that. There's a different level of approaches, both in terms of how transparent the, the data processing is and in what uh, type of knobs you should provide for the user to the user in order for the user to develop the right confidence level to use that solution. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think I think there's a balance there. And I think we actually, when we talked about our screening call, you you, you made a comment about how I think it was a, a, it was a good quote. It was something like, I think English is the the cutting the cutting edge UI is English, if I if I recall. And if I could well, or any other language or any other language, yes. Yeah, exactly. Or whatever your your interface is in. But I would agree with that sentiment that I think the customers and from a user experience standpoint, deriving that conclusion first or opinion as you say and then backing out backing out from there and providing the data or what i would call the evidence for the conclusion is a way to not black box everything you're providing some you're providing the human with the relevant analysis and evidence that went into the conclusion and hope if that was modeled on their behavior then you're kind of modeling the system around what they would have done so you're you're basically just replacing human work with computer work and what I've found over time with some of these systems with just watching customers is they tend to, they're very curious about at the beginning. And if you can build that trust, they start to understand how to trust your opinions. They tend to not 
hold you responsible as much if it, if an opinion is wrong because they know what went into the the what went into the math into the analytics and also what didn't go into it such that they can kind of fill the holes in themselves. So, but of course, this means you have to know your customer. You need to have some kind of interaction with them. So, can you tell me about like some of your customer interactions? Like, how do you? You'd mentioned one of your KPIs for your team. Tell us about one of your KPIs for your team. Over the years, obviously, the the you know you you develop professionally and and you you change the way you approach to to what you do, right? So, I've been doing different ways of of product management. Even you know, I was a CTO at some point, and but in kind of my my basic attitude is doing product management and building the product from that sort of understanding of what it is we want to build. And what I've realized over the years that there is a couple of really important points. One is, you know, the more you talk to customers, the more you understand the problem you're trying to to work on. It's especially important as you kind of a couple of years into working on a certain problem, you get to a point where you're so familiar with it that you can pretty much, without talking to customers, generate a lot of really good product for some time. And the problem is that that this might diverge at some point, or you're going to miss something important. I think that talking to customers all the time is what grounds you to what's going on. And so I've made my team of about about 10 people, we we are monitoring how many times they have interaction with customers during, um, you know, I'm going to chart it monthly. I, I started recently as one of the KPIs, and I'm going to just check if certain part of the team is talking less to customers and why is that okay or not. And then if if you have a spike, somebody stops talking to customers, then, you know, we're going to have a discussion on why that happened. Because I think ultimately, it's going to take you away from understanding what's going on and you'll be operating on on interpolating from from information you know instead of listening to the customer is it safe to say your team is comprised of primarily other uh, other product managers on certain like portions of the product and then you have some design uh, user experience reporting yes, to you um, you know i have um, let's say about about 10 people you know we're hiring now all the time the company is growing very quickly so let's say around 10 people and uh, most of them product managers and some are, uh, are design people. We also have a variety of experience, previous experience in the team, which is really something I like. And some of them are from the industry and they have built-in knowledge. Some, uh, some were in engineering before, which I think has also a, an interesting experience. And one or two came from being sales engineers or, or, engineer, or sales, which has a different aspect of, of benefit to it. You know, what I don't, I don't think I have one is some is someone that was a customer before, and if you can have that, that's that's really advantageous. I might be able to do that at some point. Sure, sure. No, I think that's great. Do you involve your your engineers or your technical people, data scientists, whatever, involved with any of these interviews that you do in your customer outreach? Uh, as much as possible, you know, we we will located on multiple sites, and a lot of the engineers I work with right now are located in China, and they they may or may not be. In terms of language, we might have sometimes barriers, but absolutely when possible. I know that when I transitioned from engineering to product management, the exposure to customers were was very, very educational for me. And so, you know, whenever I, I'm able to expose people to, to customers that, you know, I, I take that opportunity. Sure. You have an interesting position, and maybe this is super common, I don't know. But 
you've started out in a technical capacity, you have an engineering background, you were a CTO, and now you're in product. So I'm curious, as, as someone that's looking at holistic product, both a business and also the quali- some kind of experience that you need to do, you need to facilitate in order to have a relevant business, are there biases that you need to keep in check from your technical background where you know the, <laughs> the engineer in you says, I want to do X, and you're like, no, no, no. Like, what, what are some of those things to watch out for to make sure that you're focused on that customer experience and not how it's implemented? The question of bias is, is a wide one. It's not just about uh, engineering. It's, it's bias in general. At some point, you, you, know, you, you obviously you get excited about what you're building and you see all the possibilities. You know, we can do something really cool here. We can solve that problem or this problem. And then you, you start developing a preference. You know, it's very natural. And so when you realize that this is the case, sometimes you try to just not have a bias, but you can't. You, everybody has one. The, the, the problem is how do you make sure that this bias does not impact when you talk to a customer? Because it's very easy to have a customer tell you what you want to hear. You know, the, the, probably the, the easiest person to, to deceive is you if you don't pay attention, right? And so this is one of those things. And with regards to, you know, engineering bias, it's not very different than, than any type, other type of bias. So engineers in many cases just really care about working on interesting things and new technologies. And sometimes there's a, a problem. I think the more, the more advanced engineers start to think about, you know, how would I generalize that problem? And then it, it might be a runaway process where they want to build more than required. And that more may or may not be pointing at the right direction. So that type of, uh, that's another type of bias. So that, again, definitely, definitely something to watch for. I want to move on to some other topics only because I can totally spend an hour talking about how important it is to do customer research. And I love that you're doing that. And I think the theme here is you've actually turned that into a KPI for your particular, your reports and, and your, the product management division at your company, which says that it's important to develop that habit. So I would totally champion that. It's not where I would like it to be. I can tell you where I, I would love it to be. In, a, in a, I think it, since you, you're opening this, I, I would tell you what, what would be ideal, but it's a lot to ask for. So, so I'm not implementing that right now. But, so I do check that people you know, interact with customers and they have written down notes, right? And written down notes should not be like two lines. It should be, it should be telling something. Ideally, somebody can transcribe what the what the meeting was, but that's almost impossible. I, you know, I, I try, but it's very very difficult. But what I would have loved to do that we don't do right now because it's it's a lot to ask for. But I would love to have people repeat in their head and in their notes the meeting and try and extract problem statements. In the past, I've implemented that in in some situations. It was successful, but you have to do it in a continuous like fashion over a long time. And then you see those problem statements. You know, how many references do you have to every problem statement? It's really um, giving you a, a really great visibility into what's going on. Now, asking that is, uh, is difficult, as I said, but having clear notes is, is a good start. I might also double, you know, just tack on to that. Uh, another thing you can do is it, it can be very hard to listen attentively and to draft notes. So I often, when I'm facilitating uh, research sessions, 
with a client is you'll have one person facilitating and one person taking notes, and then you kind of debrief at the end. Sometimes it it does mean it's a two-on-one instead of a one-on-one, and it it doesn't need to be perfect. You can get better at this over time, but that's one way to get a little bit higher quality data. And you can also just use something like an audio recorder on your phone instead of handwriting the notes. It's just, you know, when that meeting's over, you grab grab a phone booth type room and just talk into a phone. And then you can just have that text, you know, converted, have the audio converted to text very simply and quickly with the machine. And then that way you've got a nice dump of, of what the conclusions were from the session. So the one thing to watch out for sometimes is just that building these libraries of content, a lot of times, the, and this was it, traditionally in like the usability field and the human factors field, you, you know, they came out of science backgrounds. So they would write these very long reports. And typically what happens is, guess what? Nobody reads the reports. <laughs> so you have to watch out for that. We're doing all this stuff, but we're not, we're not taking any action on the information there. So I like the highlight real concept, uh, you know, however you go about doing that. So, but that's great. So I wanted to move on to, can you talk to me a little bit about like engagement with these data products? So the, one of the things that I know, and this is probably a little bit truer in uh, companies that are doing deploying internal analytics, like non-digital native companies, non-product companies, but they're having trouble with engagement. So customers aren't using the services. Do you have any broad ideas on how we can increase engagement from your perspective? How do you make the tools more useful, more usable? What do you have to say about that? How do you make the tools more useful? It, I think it's also, it's, it's kind of a somewhat related question to how do you make your product successful to begin with. I'm, I'm going to talk about a new concept rather than incremental. If you're doing something incremental, I'm assuming you have enough data to, to kind of place, place your bets successfully. But if you're doing a, a fairly new concept, what I would usually recommend is don't code it. Try and use simulations and excelling and modeling and whatever it is that, that you can to build it without building it, to prototype it. And then have a few lead users. Those are users that are excited about this domain and they really care about solving that specific issue enough to work with you iteratively. And then you, you need like two, three or four of those and you just start working with them. And as much as possible, use their data. So in the data domain, right, in the, when we're doing analytics-related products, part of the user experience is the entire cycle. It's, it's not just, oh, the user interface is the user experience. No, it's the, how the data is being, you know, getting into the system. How is it being acquired? How is it being processed? And how is it being used on the other side when it's producing meaningful insights? And so you can test a lot of that cycle without a product and uh, or with a very light, you know, sort of a product, a prototype of the product. And I'd recommend that as much as possible. And uh, if you're going the right way, you will know very quickly. And if you're going the wrong way, also you, you will know quickly and you can either course correct or eliminate completely the project and save a lot of time and money, right? So that's usually something that works really, really well. For new concept. Now, for incremental, it's slightly different. Usually, you can use a similar type of approach, but you can code something that's kind of a prototype into your product and uh, show capability 
And then uh, usually you would have a lot more customers that are willing to work with you because it's a small increment. And then so, you know, you can validate early. That I guess that's the, that's the bottom line here. Experiment, iterate, validate early. How is it necessary to code even, I'm going to use the word code, we're talking about Excel or whatever it may be, and is it necessary to get even into that level of technical implementation in order to do a prototype? I love the idea of working with customer data, right? Because that, that removes some of the, the classic example I've experienced is like financial products, right? Where you're, you know, I was working on a trading system portfolio management, and you'd have a bunch of stock positions in a table, and you're trying to test the design of the table, and you have funny prices for why is Apple stock trading at $12? Oh my God, what is going on? And that has nothing to do with the study, but you've now completely taken the, the user out of the... You will, not the get, you will not get a meaningful response yeah. <laughs> from that person. So I love that, but do you need to necessarily even get into modeling and all this kind of stuff? If, for example, the goal is to see, you know, would that downstream user take action or not based on what they're seeing you know, in the tool if you're using a paper prototype or something like that? Like, what would you do if it says it's, it's predicted to between 41 and 44? You know, what would you do next? You know, and you happen to know that that's like a sensitive range. Do you even need to have customer, like actual Excel or math happening behind the scenes? I, I can see where this question kind of is coming from. You know, in many cases, just putting like a wireframe mock-up might really give people a good feeling about where you're going with this. But I do think that in many, many cases, not working with real data and even customer data. Customer data is not a must, but real data is not going to give you the right answer. And I, I, I'll explain when, when this can happen. So there is the case that you mentioned, which I, I wasn't even about to mention that, but it's true. It's like, if the data that you see doesn't make sense, you're emotionally detached, right? So you're not getting good, good responses from this person. Now, assuming the data you know, is good, and if it's yours, you're even, you know, you're even connected much better to what you see. But certain type of, uh, of problems are just, you cannot understand, you cannot get a meaningful answer if the data is not real. I'll give an example. Right now, we're facing a very specific situation where Logic Monitor is, is, is actually now in the process of redoing the UI and, and fixing usability. I'm told that this is the fourth time we're doing it. And there is a, a very specific problem of how to do search. And the search, we've been, we've been going back and forth on how does the search results should really show up because there's a couple, because the, the search results are coming back in multiple levels. There's data with dependency and results are coming from multiple levels of dependency and need to show up on the same screen in a way that the user can use it. And we kind of got to the conclusion that this, this is hard enough to, the problem is hard enough to answer and we need to prototype like maybe one or even two or three types of result presentation and just show it to customers. And obviously, we want to code as minimum as possible to do that, but this is something we're going to do. And then we usually do it with just wireframes, but in that specific situation, we are not only needing real data, but we're actually coding something very minimal three times to get the right answer. 
I think the theme here is whether it's code or whatever material you're using, that there's a theme of prototyping. And I, I would add that, you know, in in the spirit of a minimum viable product or what I would call a minimum valuable product, I, I like that better, is figuring out what is the minimum amount of design work. And, and I mean design, which could include some technical implementation like a prototype. What's the minimum amount that you need to, to put out in front of a customer to learn something, to figure it out if it's on the right track. That's really what it's about. So if in your case, maybe it does take, you know, actually building a light prototype. Maybe you don't actually query 30 data sources and you just have one database with a bunch of C data in it and you kind of control the, the test, but at least it, you know, it's, it simulates the experience of, you know, pulling data from many places or something like that. And then you can tweak the, tweak the, the UI as you evaluate. Yeah, I think it's a bit domain specific. I think that, again, because in many cases, you can do wireframes and you'd be fine. But remember, the, the, the products that, that have a, if, you, if you're trying to test a complete flow, right, you're testing a flow which may include 10, 15 steps of the user through the user interface. And if you can do that with just wireframes, where the, every step that they did produces result that kind of makes sense, and you don't have to model it at the back at the background, then that's fine. It's probably better. But when we are talking about 10 to 15 steps, sometimes the amount of effort that goes into the wireframe is big enough to consider a very light background Excel implementation. You know, when it becomes kind of comparable, if if doing wireframe is 80% of doing a very light implementation where the background is Excel, or or even like you know, 70%, then I would say, hey, let's do a little bit of a, more of an effort. And then our ability to test opens up to a lot of other possibilities that are not rigid within that wireframe, right? So something to think about. Sure. And I, I would agree if you can get a higher fidelity prototype like that with the same amount of effort, then by absolutely, you're going you're gonna to uncover probably exceptions or you're going to uncover information in an evaluation with a customer that you didn't probably ask about. There's so much more stuff going on and there's so much more information to be gleaned from that. So the main thing is not falling in love with it too early and not over-investing in it such that you're not willing to really make a change to it going forward. And, and I, I find that's the challenge with, especially with data products is there's such, you know, there's often, as you, I'm sure you've experienced, there's a tremendous amount of investment sometimes just to get to the point where there's a search box and there's data coming back. And at that point, you can fool yourself and say, oh, we're doing design iterations. But in reality, no one really wants to go back and change the plumbing at that point because it was so hard just to get to that first thing. So I think the goal is to not build too much and make and be aware of of that bias to not want to go back and rework what may be a difficult, you know, oh, it's just a search box. It's like, yes, but if no one can get from A to B, then the entire value of the product is it's moot. And it sounds like it's, oh, it's just a search box. It's like, well, there's a lot of stuff going on with getting them from A to B in the right way in that particular case. So I totally agree. I, um, I'm, you know, I've seen a lot of uh, managers do that mistake. I bet that I did that mistake once or twice in my career. <laughs> You know, this is awesome. It looks great. Package it and let's ship it. You know, that is a big mistake because then people are telling you, no, 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 this is this is just a proof of concept. And managers sometimes cannot understand the difference. And so it's a communication problem. It's setting expectations. And you're right. Uh, sometimes the way to avoid it is just not not get into this red hole. And I and I agree if you can, if you can. 
So in the, traditionally, from my work in, in the domain that you're in, the tradition of enterprise tools is that, quite frankly, they can suck. And the, the tolerances for quality was quite low. And I think that's, that's been changing at the slow growth, that the expectation that these tools can kind of be hard to use and they're supposed to be really complicated and therefore this very technical user, that's changing. Like the customer, the end user is more aware of design. So I'm curious, do you, do you find that that expectation is going up and do you find that new technology is making it easier to provide a better experience? Or is that being negated by the fact that like in your, in your particular domain, you've got cloud and on-premise. And I, I could see the challenges going up just as well as some of the tools might get better. The challenges might get harder too. So is it kind of like net out at like no change? Or like, what, what are your thoughts no, on no. that? No, no. It's not, it's not the opposite vectors. They're actually pointing to the same, the same direction. Ah. Okay. I think, right? So the thing is, uh, I mean, what, what you're saying is, I believe, no longer the case. I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe in some old banks somewhere in Europe where it's <laughs> like old-fashioned, because I still heard that some banks in Germany are, are based on paper. So <laughs> that's why I'm, I'm, I made this comment, but, you know, no computers. But no, this is, this is in my mind, this is long gone. It's uh, multiple multiple trends are really pointing to the same direction. First of all, people are educated by Apple that you can, in fact, have a product that's pleasant to use. Some, some people, like young people in their 20s and 30s, uh, most of what they've seen is really a lot better than what, um, what you and I have seen, being uh, slightly older than that. And so expectation is to have good products and They've seen that hardware and software and combination of those things can be done well. That's one. The, the second is that the technology is evolving, especially in my, in my space. You know, there's been virtualization and then there's cloud and then there's container, containerization and so many heavy, you know, waves, big waves that are changing everything that you constantly have to refresh your software and the ability. So... The users inside the enterprises are now replacing stuff much faster. They're replacing their infrastructure much faster. And then with that, they replace software and adopt it much faster. So the barrier of replacing software goes down. And so bad software will go out and better software will come in, right? So if it's easier to use, you will actually win in the marketplace because of that it's no you know it's not a secondary it's it's one of the it's one of the things that people care about and they don't care about the user experience specifically they care about being able to complete their tasks they don't care how that happened so if it, if it was easier to achieve what they need and it left them with a good feeling it's a better tool that derives better usability and so everything is pointing to the same direction because you have to you have to refresh as a, as a vendor, you have to create software faster to adjust to the new waves of, of technology that's coming in because that's part of being competitive. And while you're at it, you have to take care of creating really strong usability because then you will have an, another advantage in the, in the marketplace. So I think those trends are all reinforcing the same direction. You, you have to have great usability. And, and by the way, usability is not limited to user interface. It's everything. 
user interface is just a part of it. I didn't want to bias my question to you, but I, I would wholeheartedly agree that the tolerance levels for you know really difficult software or software that doesn't really provide the value clearly or quickly, the tolerances for that have gone down quite a bit. And, and I think you're, you're totally spot on that consumer products have created an expectation that it doesn't need to be that complicated. A lot of times this is surfaced in language like, Oh, it's kind of ugly, or, or or you know, customers will comment sometimes on paint, on the paint and the the surface interface because they don't necessarily have the language to explain why it it actually may be a utility problem or just a value problem. So I think the importance here is, as you said, usability is important, but it's not just about that. Ultimately, it's about whether value is created. So if you're a decision support tool, like a declarative decision support tool in your case, it's probably often about minimal time spent using the tool, maximum signal when I do have to use the tool. And like the best case scenario is probably not ever have to go, never needing to go into the tool to begin with. That's actually the highest business value. And so you could focus all day on UI, but maybe it's a, maybe it's a one word, maybe it's a one sentence text, text message is really the only interface that's required. And you might deliver a ton of value with just that. So I would totally agree. So I, I agree. I'll, I'll, um, to add on what you have said, I totally agree. I actually see it in the marketplace. Actually, Logic Monitor is winning deals that are based on ultimately better usability. I can give you an example. So a lot of customers that we see, kind of companies are growing and they start monitoring using a few kind of open source tools. And there's so many of them. And when you're small, you're like, this is awesome. I'm going to use this open source tool. And I, I have the problem solved. And then the company grows. And at some point, the open source tool, you realize that you you spend so much time maintaining it and so much time on making sure that the tool keeps on working when you add another resource to the network. I think the old, the old uh, expression was uh, tool time versus value time or something like that. And, and that's why I said it's not about... Yeah, tool time versus goal time. Goal time, exactly. And so... This is much, much bigger than user interface. This is about the whole experience, which, which means that in those open source tools, you need to have a team of five people that are chasing all the changes that happen in the organization. And, the, and, and you, you're never there. You're never actually up to date with what's going on. And so from a very high level perspective, this thing just doesn't work. And it doesn't work because of usability. And so we come in and uh, I've stated what we we're trying to do. We're trying to do something that just works and works well and quickly, and you're able to deploy it quickly, and it dis- automatically discovers the changes and follows what's going on. And people are like amazed by that, and it's part of the rationale of depending on on the problems that they have. But in many cases, it's part of what makes them buy our product. And at the same time, part of our product had older user interface. And I think that the comment that you've said before where you said, oh, it's kind of an, an ugly UI or something. I think there are situations where products, even that are a bit older, might have pieces of user interface that are not as great, but the overall experience is so good that it carries the product forward, right? So, and that's why sometimes you, you would see, I, I think that in, in organizations that have a choice, they might actually opt for a product that on a first glance might look not as great from UI perspective, but overall experience is good. I'm not saying that this was the situation with Logic Monitor because we actually have um, pretty good uh, UI as well. But I think that our UI 
reached a point where it needs to be you know, improved. And, and that's what we're, we're doing now. Can I ask you a question on that? Just as we get towards the end here, what were the objectives uh, for your, if, if, if you're able to share, like what, what are the outcomes that you want to get from the new UI? There's some business or customer impact you're probably looking for, right? A business justification for the redesign. There is. It's, it's, it's fairly complicated because it's also a very expensive process. There are very qualitative things that you start hearing like, oh, you are, your, your user interface looks old. Or people tell you things like, your customer X is much easier to do a certain task. So I like that better because it's a lot more specific and they can explain why and all that. But in many cases, you just get like, oh, this other customer, this other company has like a new UI and it's so much more pretty and cool. And that's very hard to measure and very hard to act on. So we had, a, we had some of that. But more specifically, I think that Logic Monitor is also moving from kind of the mid-market to more and more enterprise. And as that happens, things that certain things that used to be okay are no longer okay. So the amount of data that we're dealing with on the screen and how we present it and how we, how we process and present it, you know, when you have a couple of hundreds of items, you can think about a tree or a table. When you have uh, hundreds of thousands, then the entire thinking process is different and you, you need a completely different method. So there's been all those changes like trends that we're, we're moving up market in terms of size. We expect a lot more data in the user interface. People are telling us that the UI looks a little bit old. We want to refresh also the technology so we can do other things. Like if you're doing things that are mostly server-based, then UI tends to be more static it doesn't have to be that way, but it's just an engineering challenge. But if you, you're moving to more new frameworks like uh, React, Redux, or, or things like that, you can do a lot more dynamic. Every component can, can take care of itself and its data and its model and, and update asynchronously. So it opens up the product to do things that are a lot more responsive, like a one-page application, for example. Large part of the light business logic is actually done on the client side rather than the server side. And so it, it makes a much better user experience. So there's been a, all those multiple, multiple causes, multiple trends that lead us to the conclusion that we need to refresh. Was there a, a particular business outcome though? Are you, for example, are you having some attrition and you're looking to stop that? Or do you think this is the way to like start facilitating sales? to close more easily with the better UI or any, anything like that? Or is it mostly qualitative? Uh, no, it's, uh, we, we believe that some of the, you know, we, obviously we, we try and quantitatively justify stuff. So we look at all the requests from the last two years and how many of them are related to UI and certain things in the UI that are very hard to do today. We also, we do think that this will encourage sales for certain reasons that we will improve in the UI. I think that over the, the years, the product also, because there's so many people changing things in the product, I think that some of the consistency have dissolved along the way. So in most cases, you do things the same way, but in other cases, you do it a little bit differently. And that is both in concepts and the UI. And that's confusing for new users. You know, old users don't care. They, they, they got used to it. But, but I think there's some issues of consistency but back to your question, we do expect that to, to increase sales. We expect that to increase customer satisfaction. 
And we're actually improving a lot of the flows that we went through. And we realized that simple things are missing in the UI that can, you know, those are the nuggets, the, the gold nuggets that you find on the way is the really simple things that you could add in or modify in certain places that would make flows a lot better. I, and I mean, reducing five to 10 clicks in a certain flow. My favorite one is, you know, I look at, I look at the user and he ends up working on a product and they have like six or seven open tabs. I'm like, why, why do you have so many tabs? And he explains, it makes total sense. And it shows that you're missing something in the product, right? There's a couple of things that are easy telltales, you know, if multiple tabs open or you have a sticky note on the side with text or you have an Excel open on the side where people copy paste, all those things are signs to problems with the product. We had a few of those and, and our product is going to come out the other side much, much more pleasant for the users and help them achieve things faster. Great. Well, I wish you... Uh... Good fortune and good luck uh, with that uh, redesign that you guys are going through at Logic Monitor. So uh, on that note, where can people find Logic Monitor and where can they find you if they wanted to uh, follow your... You can find me on Twitter. Uh, the handle is at Gadi Oren, G-A-D-I-O-R-E-N. I have a LinkedIn page. You can you can look me up and, and find me there. Logic Monitor is, you know, you can get to our website. It's www.logicmonitor.com. And that will uh, get you started if you're interested with that. Awesome. Well, thanks, uh, Gadi. This has been uh, really fun to uh, talk to you and, and hear about your experience here. So thanks for coming on Experiencing Data. Great. Thank you very much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.